Father in heaven, I wanna thank you for all the beautiful people that have been with, well, not just with me, Father, but that we've been with you on this journey in DA with DA. What a book this is. And Father, I, I just was thinking about it today. I would just defy anyone to read this book with an open heart and not come away saying that Jesus is awesome. Like just from an artistic, aesthetic, appealing point of view, Jesus is incredible. He's amazing. And, and Father, you enabled Ellen White to capture his beauty uh, in such a wonderful, readable, and challenging and convicting way. Father, I'm just super thankful for Jesus. And then I'm super thankful for this book that captures um, the beauty and sublimity of Jesus. Now, Father, we're going to go with Jesus into a very dark place, um, Gethsemane. And uh, Lord, we're not going to understand what's going on there. I mean, it's incomprehensible. The chapter says that repeatedly. But Father, insofar as we can understand it and experience it and appreciate it, I pray that we would. Father, may the reading of this chapter and the debriefing about this chapter that we do now in DA with DA, may it make not just the chapter more lucid and clear and powerful and, and understandable, but Father, may it make the experience that. May we understand to the degree that we can what Jesus endured. And Father, of course, it is you know infinitely beyond our comprehension. But again, to the degree that we can, we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts. Uh, be with us now, Father. Thank you for an incredible day. I hope everyone else had a great day. Father, I've had an absolute fantastic day, just a, a wonderful day. And so I'm asking that you'll be with us now and uh, we turn our attention to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys ready? Let's do this. DA with DA, chapter 74. All right, this chapter is based on Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. I love the Matthew 26 um, treatment of Gethsemane. So I'll probably do Matthew 26 and John 18. So I'm turning to Matthew chapter 26. The Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to start in verse 36. So 26, 36. 26, 36. All the way down to 56. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. It says, Then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, What? Could, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed saying, oh my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand and the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people 
Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Okay, that's heavy, super heavy. That's Matthew chapter 26. Let's go to John 18. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 18, 1 to 12. John 18, there we are. John 18, beginning at verse one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Jesus and Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he had said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you, I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given to me? I think that's it. Yeah, oh, verse 12. Then the detachment of troops and the captains and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Okay. All right, we could also read the Luke 22 account and the Mark 14 account, but I think we won't do that. All right, so the first thing that I wanna note is just in the Matthew 26, Matthew makes the point very clearly, purposefully about this cup, the cup. And, and the cup is a direct follow-up from the cup that Jesus has just offered just an hour or two before to the disciples in the upper room when he says, take this cup, all of you, and then drink all of it. Okay, Jesus didn't drink from that cup because that's the cup of communion. That's the cup of connection. That's the cup of salvation. That's the cup of his blood, the new covenant. Jesus didn't drink out of that cup. He gave it to them to drink all of it by his own words. Because Jesus knew that the cup that he was to drink, he would drink shortly thereafter. And that would not be the cup of communion and connection and salvation. That would be the cup of separation and wrath and condemnation, right? Which none of the disciples would drink. Now they thought they could, remember? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Oh yeah, no problem, no problem. So I just wanna point out that in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew is making the point very purposefully about the difference between the cup 
that the disciples were given by Jesus that symbolized his blood of the new covenant and the cup that he himself drank, which was nothing less than the wrath of God poured out against sin. Jesus was now numbered with the transgressors and it was the cup of separation, okay? So let's get into this. Um, wow, this chapter is, it's, it's, I think this chapter is, and I, I think you'll go with me on this. I think you'll know what I mean. To me, this chapter was holy. I'm trying to find a place to set my book here. It doesn't want to stay there anymore. Um, th- this chapter felt very holy to me. I felt very much like I was on sacred ground. And I, I always feel this way in this chapter. I feel like this is a chapter you have to go to reverently. And as I say, I've read this chapter over and over and over again from the very early days of my Christian experience. And there have been times where I've gone here out of worship. I've gone here in preparation for a foot washing service. I've gone here when I've fallen and failed and struggled. I've, gone, I've just gone here for a lot of different reasons. And I always find that it ministers to my soul in, in such a wonderful way, but it just feels holy. And even when I'm reading it, I, I try not to overthink it. I just, I just wanna behold it, right? It almost feels like to study it is the wrong thing, right? Like this is not, and I'm not suggesting that you couldn't study it. I just, when I go to it, I often feel like I'm not here to study Jesus in Gethsemane. I'm here, and Ellen White actually says this, at least once, and I think several times in the chapter, she says, behold him. Just, just stop, put everything aside, even your desire to study, to understand, to know. Okay, yeah, just set that over here for a moment and just, just th- think about this. Look at this. Take this in, behold this. And then, of course, you're going to ask yourself this question. What am I looking at? What am I beholding? And the answer is, we don't really know. We, we don't really know what we're looking at. Ellen White makes, takes great pains to make it clear that, that what's happening there in Gethsemane is something that we do not understand. Not only do not, cannot. So it's a little bit like God is saying, look at this thing. Do you see this thing? And even with your limited capacity and your limited resources and being as you are saturated uh, inseparably, inexorably from your humanity. Just, just try and look at it and try to observe what's going on there. And then the scientific part of us, the, the knowledge junkie part of us, the inquisitive part of us wants to say, yeah, yeah, but what and how much? And then, and what about? And then at, at every question, we find ourselves just very quickly up against an incomprehensible mystery which the human mind cannot comprehend. We're just, we're watching Jesus being numbered with the transgressors and the inter-Trinitarian dynamics, the Godhead is separating. Okay, so, so, so God is one. I and my father are one. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord he is one. And yet we know that within the oneness of God, within the unity of God, there's father, Son and Spirit. This is plainly revealed in Scripture. And yet something's happening here where in some like tectonic, seismic, incomprehensible mystery, there's a a brokenness, a separation, a sundering within the very nature of God. 
within the nature of reality itself. I mean, come on, what are we talking about? We are already so far out of our depth. And so when I come to this chapter, I just feel like, I just, it feels holy to me. I feel like I, in fact, I, I got my shoes off. I got my bedroom slippers on. I just took them off. I'm on holy ground now. I just took my shoes off. Slide them over there. You, you know what I mean? Like this chapter feels, and there've been a lot of great chapters, but this one feels holy to me. Okay, let's get into this holy chapter. Um, let's start reading paragraph one. In company with his disciples, the Savior, the Savior slowly made his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Passover moon, broad and full, shone from a cloudless sky. The city of pilgrims' tents was hushed into silence. Second paragraph, Jesus had been earnestly conversing with his disciples and instructing them. But as he neared Gethsemane, and we should say that a Gethsemane or the word Gethsemane means olive oil press, an olive oil press. So you take the olives, you put them into a press, you squeeze them and the oil comes out. That's what Gethsemane means. Jesus is going to go into Gethsemane and he's going to be squeezed and the good stuff is gonna come out. Faithfulness, fidelity, commitment, love, sympathy. Jesus had been earnestly conversing with his disciples and instructing them, but as he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. He had often visited this spot for meditation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrow as upon this night of his last agony. Throughout his life on earth, he had walked in the light of God's presence. When in conflict with men who were inspired of the very spirit of Satan, he could say, and I love her use of John 8, 29 here. So perfect, so clever. And he who sent me is with me. The father has not left me alone. Mm. For I do always those things that please him. And then this, but now, but now, she will use that phrase, I counted at least three times strategically, but now. And I, I, I really like that phrase. Romans 3 has this great but now moment in it. You're saying something, you're saying something, you're saying something, you're saying, and then but now, right? So but is a conjunction that indicates a dramatic change of direction. And then now gives us a sense of the immediacy of it. So you can just see it in your mind's eye, can't you? Um, Jesus has left the upper room. They were, went out, remember, singing, what is it, Psalm 117 or 107? What was the psalm they were singing as they went out of the upper room? It'll drive me crazy if I don't go back and look. Psalm 117. They're going out, they're singing, there's joy, but then they're troubled by the fact that Jesus has said that you will all be made to stumble because of me tonight. And so he's teaching them, he's talking to them, and as they're walking, and then as they get close to Gethsemane, it's like, Something happens. He, 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 he's coming closer to something that, and the disciples don't understand. They're just like, whoa, what happened there? Jesus is now quiet. He's pensive. There's a sadness about him and they're sort of scared and they don't know quite what to do. So they just walk with him. And then I really love that use again of John eight twenty nine. Jesus had formerly said, uh, my father has not left me alone. I'm with my father. My father's with me and I'm with him. But now, but now, he seemed to be, sh to be shut out from the light of God. The connection was, 
Now he was numbered with the transgressors. The guilt of fallen humanity he must bear. Upon him who knew no sin must be laid the iniquity of us all. This has got Isaiah 53 all over it. Numbered with the transgressors. The iniquity of us all is laid upon him. This is all Isaiah 53. Okay. So dreadful does sin appear to him. So great is the weight of guilt he must bear that he is tempted to fear. It will shut him out. There it is again. Shut out. From his father's forever from his father's love. Feeling how terrible is the wrath of God against transgression, he exclaims, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the point of death. Okay, so right here, we're already hard up against that holy mystery that we cannot comprehend, that we do not understand, and we just are asked asked to observe it, to behold it, to watch it. And, and even to suspend temporarily our inquisitiveness, right? That scientific enterprise where we want to know, hey, what's going on here? Um, we're just asked to observe it. Just watch it. Third paragraph. As they approached the garden, the disciples had noticed the change that came over their master. Ah, there it is. Never before had they seen him so utterly sad. And I thought it was very interesting. She, she uses the word sorrow and sad and sadness, quite a little bit. Sorrow, sad, and sadness, several times. So they said, she says they had never before seen him so, so utterly sad and silent. As he proceeded, this strange sadness deepened. Yet they dared not question him as to the cause. Okay, so the disciples are afraid. They're confused and they're... Miss, they, don't, they don't know how to relate to Jesus' sudden change of attitude. And uh, we're supposed to feel the same way. You're supposed to enter into the experience of the disciples. You're supposed to go, what's going on here? In the same way that the disciples were mystified and confused and bewildered, you're supposed to feel exactly the same way. Every step that he now took was with labored effort. He groaned aloud as if suffering under the pressure of a terrible burden. Twice his companions supported him, or he would have fallen to the earth. Okay, so the, the language here of, of a burden or of a weight is straight out of Isaiah 53, over and over again. If you go read Isaiah 53, there's, I don't know, seven or eight or nine or 10 references to, to something being placed on the suffering servant, something being placed on him. And that's the sense that the disciples here get. They're like, whoa, Something's on him, but they could look and physically see there was nothing on him. There was no physical weight pushing him down, but he's, his steps are becoming labored. And, and it's like he almost can't walk, like there's something heavy on his back. And then he, he says, my soul is dying, right? That's, what he, that's basically what he says. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to the point of death. He's saying, my soul is dying. Let's just, let's just continue on here. Let's keep reading. Near the entrance of the garden, Jesus left all but three of the disciples, bidding them pray for themselves and for him. With Peter and James and John, he entered the secluded recesses. And she goes on to say these three disciples were his closest companions. Okay, so now one of the major themes of this chapter, yeah, Vegan Starter says that was hard to read. I agree, I agree. I feel exactly that way. I feel like, I feel like we're on holy ground here and it's almost like we're seeing something we're not supposed to see 
but, but we have to see it, right? Like, why did Jesus have the other eight not go? That's a thought. Like, why did the other eight not go? Did Jesus know that they couldn't have taken it, that they couldn't have borne it? Was it too much for them? I mean, so, so we're observing this thing and it feels like, hey, come look at this thing and you're just in a continual state of wanting to look away, right? You just don't want, you're like, yeah, but. And, and so this is where Ellen White, one of the major themes of this chapter, and it, it occurs not less than eight times. I read it through the first time, I marked it the second time and then numbered them. She's going to say this. Jesus wanted them to pray for him. She's going to use very strong language. She's going to say things like, he longed for their support. He yearned for their support and sympathy. He longed for it. He yearned for it. In fact, she's even going to say, he who had always been the intercessor now needed an intercessor. Not just that he desired it, not just that he yearned for it, not just that he longed for it. She uses all those words. She's going to say he needed an intercessor and she's going to say it at least eight times, eight times. And then she's going to say that the absence of intercession on the part of his closest friends deepened his suffering. Okay, this is a, this is a huge idea. Think about this. The disciples could have lightened the burden of Jesus. And they could have intensified the burden of Jesus in that very moment. She makes this point over and over again, eight times at least. Let me just read it to you here. The first one is in that same paragraph. Christ desired their presence near him. Christ desired their presence near him. I'm one of these people that when I get sick, I turn into a giant baby, right? I don't know, maybe you're that way. Maybe you're really tough. But when I get sick or if I've hurt myself, I, I'm like, I turn into a big wuss and I want my wife to suddenly turn into a mother figure and to be close to me and to, to hold me and to hold my hand and to, you know, you know, stroke my hair and to rub my belly. And if I'm being miserable, I want her to be, you know, up with me. I know there are some people out there that are just like very brave in their sickness and in their pain and in their suffering. And they just pretend like all is well. I'm not that person. I want everybody to know that I'm unhappy and I want you to come alongside me and, and commiserate with me. Now, I don't think Jesus here is being petty. Of course he's not. But Jesus, there's something about proximity, right? Like we instinctively reach out to touch people when they're in pain. Like we just, we just reach out and say, and we just, are you okay? Is everything okay? We just, or we instinctively hug people. We instinctively draw close to people who are undergoing significant emotional duress. And, and, and Jesus wanted that, like he was a human being. There's something in humanity that wants to be consoled, that wants to be held, that wants to be stroked, that wants to be comforted. We wanna know that someone sees us in our darkest moments. And not just that they see us, but that they're sitting proximate to us. And she's gonna say it over and over again. In fact, just go down a little bit. In fact, let's just keep reading that. 
Christ desired their presence near him. Often they had passed the night with him in this retreat. On these occasions, after a season of watching and prayer, they would sleep undisturbed a little distance from their master until he woke them in the morning to go forth anew to labor. But now, second time, she's gonna do it at least three times. I might've missed one. But now it's different. Watch this. But now he desired them to spend the night with him in prayer. Okay, there it is, the second time. He desired it. He desired their presence. He desired their prayers. And this is not play acting. This is not like, you know, the, the, the father's trying to lift up something heavy and the child comes over and says, hey, dad, I'll help you. And you say, okay, well, you get on the other end and you pretend like the child's lifting when they're really not. But it gives them a sense of participation and helping. That's not what's happening here. No, no Jesus is scared. She actually says Jesus was afraid. Jesus was afraid because this is uncharted territory. uh, We don't know what this looks like. Again, this like seismic, cosmic, tectonic thing is happening where the very nature of reality itself, the inter-Trinitarian dynamic of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is being compromised by, by sin, by the plan of salvation, and Jesus being way down with the burden of sin. And nobody knows what this looks like. Jesus doesn't know what this looks like. He's afraid. She actually says in here that Jesus was afraid that his humanity would not be able to bear it. He just thought, it's like it's almost like he just thought his body would just expire. Like it was too much. And so he wants someone near him. He went a little distance from them. Oh, it says, uh, he could not bear that they should witness the agony that he was to endure. So he said, stay here and watch with me. He went a little distance from them, not so far that they could not see and hear him, and fell prostrate on the ground. Yeah, that must have been deeply upsetting to the disciples to see Jesus, who in every circumstance, in every situation, is in perfect possession. He's calm, he's dignified, he's poised, he's not rattled. Full possession of every situation. It doesn't matter what it is. Religious leaders coming at him, no problem. Demoniacs running him down, no problem. Walking on the waves, no problem. Right at the tomb of Lazarus, no problem. Jesus is just, he's self-possessed, he's calm. He's always within himself. And so when the disciples see Jesus giving physical manifestations of an internal burden, the spiritual invisible burden, this must have been so disorienting for them. This pillar of strength now looks, in fact, Ellen White just a little bit is gonna say, he had stood like a, like a stately cedar, but now he was like a reed driven to and fro in a violent storm. And this would have been very disorienting to the disciples. He felt, he went a little distance from them, but not, as far, not so far that they could not both see and hear him. He fell prostrate upon the ground. He felt that by sin, he was being separated from his father. That's a key word, and it's a key idea in the whole chapter. Separation or separated from his father. This is the first time she uses it. The gulf was so broad, so black, so deep that his spirit shuddered before it. He's afraid. He's terrified. The agony, this agony, he must, not, he must not exert his divine power to escape. As man, he must suffer the consequences of man's sin. As man, he must endure the wrath of God against transgression. And then this paragraph, Christ was now standing in a different attitude from that in which he had ever stood before. I really like that. She has set this up with the but now, but now, and then she says, Christ was standing in a different attitude, a different orientation to God 
than he had ever stood before. And then she says the best way to sort of capture this, and she quotes the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, chapter 13, verse seven, awake, O sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion, says the Lord of hosts. And then read the rest of that paragraph. As the substitute and surety for sinful man, Christ was suffering under divine justice. He saw what justice meant. He saw, she says that again and again. He saw, he saw, he saw, he saw. Hitherto, he had been an intercessor for others. Third time now. Now he longed to have an intercessor for himself. So that's already the third time in like three paragraphs where she has said, and she's gonna say it at least eight times. He wanted them. He desired them. He longed for them. Everybody has forsaken him, including from his own perspective, God's very presence is being drawn away from him. And he is afraid. In fact, look at the very next paragraph. As Christ felt his unity with the Father broken up. What? Okay, just read that line again. As Christ felt his unity with the Father broken up. Okay, we have no idea what this means. We can talk about it. We can say things like the inter-Trinitarian dynamics were being disrupted. We can say that. We can say that, as Ellen White does, his unity with the Father was being broken up. We can say that he's being separate. We can say all of those things, but we just have to, we just have to recognize and we have to say, we have to announce that we do not understand what's happening here. We, we don't. We just are called to observe it to watch it. It is an incomprehensible mystery which the human mind is not capacitated to grasp. But insofar as we can, we just are to observe it, worshipfully observe it. And then this, he feared, I just underlined those two words, he feared. He feared, what, what did he fear? He feared that his human nature would be unable to endure the coming conflict with the powers of darkness. So he was afraid. He was afraid that the whole thing wouldn't work, that like his physical frame, whatever, six foot tall, 185 pounds, was not going to be able to endure. The, remember, there's this weight that's upon him, this invisible, immaterial, mysterious weight that's like crushing him into the ground. And he's thinking, you know, have you ever had a dream? I, I, I've, I've sometimes had a dream where I can't breathe. I'm a dreamer. And... um I, I dream most nights. In fact, I dream basically every night. And I dream a lot of dreams that are very um, real, incredibly real. In fact, I, I've actually gotten so good at dreaming that I can very often practice what's called lucid dreaming, where I can just sort of do in my dream what I want to do. Particularly, usually I'm just along for the ride, but if something starts to happen in my dream that feels a little nightmarish or feels a little scary or a little terrifying, I can very often just change the dream. I, don't, I figured this out at a young age. I just could say, well, this is my dream. This is my head. I can do what I want. But, 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 rarely, and I can remember this happened frequently as a child, and it still happens to me rarely as an adult, once every several years, I will have a nightmare of such force and, and of such power that I, I literally feel like I am completely immobilized and that I can't breathe. And sometimes I will even know that I'm having a nightmare and that I'm, I know it and I still can't like get out of it. It's, it's, a, it's the weirdest feeling ever. You just go straight tunnel vision and I can't, 
it, it, I know this will sound crazy. It just feels like I'm dying. Like, and, and I see people saying, me too, same. Others have had this experience. Okay, I think this, this is Jesus right here. He's, you know, obviously times 100 billion. Jesus is just like, he does, this is new territory, uncharted territory. And he, he's afraid that his physical frame will not be able to endure this terrifying thing that's just wrapped him up and he, he almost can't breathe, he can't stand, he can't think clearly. I mean, clearly he's undergoing significant trauma. If Jennifer Schwerzer were with us, she could talk to us about at least the physical aspects of the trauma and the brain, because Jesus had a brain, right? Like when the brain is under significant trauma and, and fear, everything narrows. You have this, I forget what it's called. There's, maybe somebody knows. There's this narrowing of vision where your brain is telling you none of this stuff out here matters. You have to deal with this thing right here. This is the thing. But the, the field of vision can narrow so much that you can actually, you can actually just be non-functional. And I think that people can just have anxiety. So that's, Jesus here is being so weighted, so crushed that he's afraid. And then she uses this phrase in that same paragraph, the one that begins as Christ felt his unity with the father being broken up. Right in the middle of that paragraph, she says this and she'll say this twice. Yeah, I agree, Megan. It's panic, anxiety, like an anxiety attack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's just like, you're just totally paralyzed, you're frozen. And uh, she's gonna use this phrase, and uh, I thought somebody had put it up there. Everything was at stake. Underline that phrase, and I'll point it out the next time it occurs. If you didn't underline that, underline that phrase. Everything was at stake. And by everything, she means everything. Everything is at stake here. I mean, if the nature of God, if the inter-Trinitarian nature of God is being disrupted, and the unity is being broken up, then everything is at stake. The universe is at stake. Humanity is at stake. To state the obvious, the earth is at stake. I mean, when she says everything is at stake, I don't think that's hyperbole. I think every single thing, because everything that's in the universe was created, and God is the creator, and something is happening with the creator. It's almost nuclear. It's atomic. Everything is at stake here. A chain reaction could go off, and the whole thing could apparently go off the rails. I mean, this is the way that Jesus feels. Um, jump down to the bottom of that paragraph. Christ's soul was filled with dread of separation from God. There it is now, the second time. Separation. Satan told him that if he became the surety for a sinful world, the separation would be eternal. He would be identified with Satan's kingdom and would never more be one with God. Well, thank you very much, Satan. I mean... Think about this. Think about this. Even if Satan isn't there, Gethsemane is still all of the things that we've already said. In other words, just take Satan, like the actual presence of Satan, the person of Satan. Just take him and put him on Mars for the Gethsemane experience. You know, the several hours that this lasts. This is still terrifying, horrific, holy, unsettling, tectonic, seismic. Okay, Satan is the gasoline on the fire. He's there to press the temptation. He doesn't create the temptation. These sins have all already been committed. 
These sins that are the, 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 the total volume of sin that is being put upon Jesus are sins that have been committed, and we talked about this the last time we were together, sins that will yet be committed. And you don't need Satan there to say, okay, okay, you know, bring him back, bring him back, like he's like on a, like a loading dock here, and Satan's the foreman. Okay, place them on Jesus. No. Satan, this equation happens if Satan is on Mars. But to make it worse... Satan is there to give the whispers, the insinuations. Oh, this, this feeling that you're having right now, this, this will be eternal. This, there's no going back here. This is irredeemable, irrecoverable. Yeah, this right here, this will break up the unity that you have had with your father from eternity past. I mean, it only makes it more nasty and more satanic, right? More, more purposefully hurtful and mean. The thing is going to happen, but Satan is there to throw his pepper all over it, his spice all over it, and to make it mean, mean-spirited. Okay, then I want to read this next, I've read almost everything up to this point, but I want to really read this next paragraph. This is the kind of thing that Satan was whispering to him, to his mind, to his conscience, the things that he was saying to him. It all looked like a giant failure. Remember the last time we were together? She says that basically Jesus' ministry looked like a giant failure. It looked like failure after failure after failure after failure after failure. She says, but with the perspective of eternity and with the benefit of hindsight, looking back, it was actually an uninterrupted series of victories. But, but notice how the idea of failure is right at the heart of what Satan is pressing here into Jesus' mind. I don't know how he does that. I don't know how Satan puts thoughts into human minds. I don't, I don't understand the physics of that. I don't understand that. I don't think we will understand it. But to the degree that it happens, the thing that he presses on him, and I think this is so telling, is the very kind of thing that Satan presses on us, which is basically this. You've been a failure. Your life is a failure. It's all a failure. You failed. I mean, doesn't Satan say that to you? I feel like when I've been under, and I have at times in my life, been under significant, I would say supernatural satanic oppression. I could tell you a couple stories, but I won't won't right now. Just, I have been in situations where I have felt Satan or one of his angels right now is strongly oppressing me right now and I can feel it. And almost always, the, the centerpiece of that satanic oppression is you are a failure. You completely suck. Your life is a giant joke and none of this is real and it's all not gonna turn out. And I'm just like, what? Where are these? these?" You know, it's just like. So listen to this paragraph in light of that. And maybe some of you, yeah, I see people saying, yeah, me too, me too, yup. Exactly. Like, like the failure, like, like, like Satan's got this arrow in his quiver and it's the failure arrow. Like you're a loser. You're a failure. It's all been for nothing. Nobody likes you. You don't even like you. Nobody. I don't like you. God doesn't like you. You suck. You're terrible and you should just give up. And of course, the, the, if you keep following that to its logical conclusion, you would become suicidal. And suicidal ideation is an actual thing that happens in the minds of people, and there's not a doubt in my mind, I have had one, two, three close friends of mine in my life commit suicide. 
There's not a doubt in my mind that they were under the direct influence of satanic suggestion when they did that. It's not a doubt in my mind. When people are brought, if they're sober, sometimes people get drunk and they do stupid things and they don't even probably know what they're doing. But if people are sober and they're committing suicide, they are under satanic oppression. And they're being told, life is not worth living for you. You are a failure. Now, now read this paragraph with this in mind. And what was to be gained by this sacrifice? How hopeless appeared the guilt and ingratitude of men. In its hardest features, Satan pressed the situation upon the Redeemer. I like that language. I feel that that's what Satan has done to me. He has pressed my failures and my weakness upon me in its hardest features. He's put the worst possible construction upon it. Now, what we're going to see here in a little bit is that God does the reverse of that. God does the opposite of that. He puts the best possible construction even upon our failures and weakness. I'm going to show you that. But, but Satan presses the hardest features. Fascinating. What great language. The people who claim to be above all others in temporal and spiritual advantages have rejected you. They are seeking to destroy you. The foundation, the center, and seal of the promises made to them as a peculiar people. One of your own disciples who has listened to your instruction and has been among the foremost in church activities will betray you. Yeah, yeah, one of your disciples, i.e. you're a failure. You're a bad teacher, and if you, you obviously didn't do it right. One of your most zealous followers will deny you. Everybody will leave you. Christ's whole being aboard the thought that those whom he had undertaken to save, those whom he had loved so much, should unite in the plots of Satan. This pierced his soul. His soul was already dying. And now Satan pushes these psychological temptations into his frame of mental reference and it pierces his soul. The conflict was terrible. Its measure was the guilt of his nation, of his accusers and betrayer, and the guilt of the whole world lying in wickedness. The sins of men weighed heavily upon Christ and the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. Then these two words, behold him. She builds up to this place, sprinkles in the satanic cruelty and meanness. And then she says two words, behold him. And that's what we're supposed to do in this chapter. That's what's supposed to happen here in this chapter. Whether it's in Luke or in Matthew or in Mark or in John or in the Desire of Ages, what we're supposed to be doing here is looking at Jesus. Not so much to understand, to grasp, to perceive but to observe, to recognize and admit the fundamental mystery of the thing we're looking at, and then to just observe it, to be in awe of it. We've got to go through this experience. We have to go through this valley or we're not going to appreciate the resurrection. The good news is only as good as the bad news is bad. The good news is only as good as the bad news is bad and to the degree that we can understand the depth and darkness of the bad news, we have to try. Behold him. Look at him, contemplating the price to be paid for the human soul. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground. Wow, this is great stuff. This, I love this imagery. Uh, this imagery has been in my mind ever since I read this book the, for the first time back in 1997. 
First time I read the book. Clinging to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn further from God. There's the idea of separation again. The chilling dew of the night falls upon his prostrate prostate form, but he heeds it not. From his pale lips comes the bitter cry, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You can make a case that the most important word in the entire universe is nevertheless. Because without, never, without that nevertheless, remember, remember everything is at stake. So that nevertheless right there is the most important word in all of human history. If Jesus doesn't get to the point where he says, I really, 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 really don't want to do this. Everything in me is drawing back from this. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to be separated from my father. I don't want to bear this heavy load. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Without that nevertheless, we're not here. We're not here. We're not reading. We're not studying. We're not learning. We're not worshiping. We're not keeping Sabbath. We're not looking at birds. We're not rock climbing. We're not preparing. We're not, no, none of that's happening without that word, that fulcrum, the word nevertheless. The human heart longs for sympathy and suffering. This is now the fourth time, the fourth time where she says the human heart longs for sympathy and suffering. This longing Christ felt to the very depths of his being. Fourth time now she said it. Look at this. In the supreme agony of his soul, he came to his disciples with a yearning desire. Fifth time. She just keeps coming back to this well. She's going back to that well over and over again because either the disciples can decrease or increase the suffering and situation in which Jesus finds himself. And she's making the point that they could have made it better. But in fact, they made it no better. Uh, then she says, the one, uh, just jumping down a sentence or two, the one who had always had words of sympathy for them was now suffering superhuman agony. She uses that word superhuman at least twice. Superhuman, great word. What does that mean? We have no idea. Don't think Superman, don't think any of that foolishness. Superhuman is just her way of saying, it's a mystery, it's an enigma. We don't know, superhuman, beyond human capacity or comprehension. Superhuman, she says. Superhuman agony. And he longed to know they were praying for him. That's the sixth time. He longed to know that they were praying for him. Then she goes down, jump to the last sentence in that same paragraph. If he could only know that his disciples understood and appreciated this, he would be strengthened. Go to the next paragraph. He would be relieved. A couple sentences later, he would have been comforted. So she uses these three words. She says he would have been strengthened, relieved, and comforted to know that his disciples were with him in this crucible moment. That's so fascinating that, that the eternal God, in some sense, is leaning into the sympathy and support of his creation. This gets right to the heart of what Lewis called the greatest of all of God's miracles, was that he made stuff creatures, beings, agents that were capable of resisting him. Well, he also made creatures and beings that were capable of supporting him and strengthening him and relieving him. I mean, where do we put that? Well, I guess we can extrapolate from that that we too can support and comfort and strengthen and bring joy to the heart of God. I'm turning the page. Uh, she says, 
At first, they had been much troubled to see their master, usually so calm and dignified, wrestling with, and then she just says it here expressly, a sorrow that was beyond comprehension. Okay, so there she just says it. All the things she's been hinting at by phrases like so deep, so dark, superhuman. Now she just says beyond human comprehension. A sorrow that was beyond comprehension. She then says they didn't intend to leave him alone. But she uses a lot of very interesting language in this chapter. Like she says the, the word stupor. She even uses the word spell. Like the, the, this inability to stay awake. Probably satanic. Right? That's like kind of put them to sleep. And they just can't. They just cannot stay awake. Um, jump down to the bottom. Oh, the next paragraph that begins just before. Just before. Um, she's talking about how. The disciples had said, no, 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 we'll stand by you. And then Peter speaks up and says, even if everybody's made to stumble because of you, I won't be. And then go to the last sentence, uh, second to the last sentence of that paragraph. Thus, when the Savior was most in need of their sympathy and prayers, that is now the seventh time. The seventh time. She said he needs it. He longs for it. He desires it. It could have brought him strength and relief and comfort. Um, the next paragraph, she describes his supreme sorrow. She says that, then she reminds us about the thing in Matthew chapter 20. Are you able, hey, would, my son would sit on the right and one on the left. And then Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they say, yeah, no problem. Yeah, we are able. And then now she contrasts that with the fact they can't, they can't stay awake, right? It's not like they're, you know, being tortured here, you know, or drawn and quartered or having flaming coals placed on their feet. They just can't stay awake. It would seem like a pretty easy to pass test. Like, yeah, yeah, that's one you, if you would have said to them, all you have to do is stay awake. They'd be like, ha, stay awake with you and pray. We'd, of course, no problem. I would do more than that, Jesus. Let me tell you what I would do for you. I would do anything for you. They could saw off my right arm while I was awake and I wouldn't deny you. And remember that line? But Peter didn't know himself. And then I thought this was great. Jesus comes out, finds them sleeping, and then this line. The weakness of his disciples awakened the sympathy of Jesus. <laughs> this is the very thing I was telling you. Remember how Satan presses in the hardest features upon Jesus' mind his failures. Here, the disciples are in the midst of actual failure. This is a total fail. This is a giant fail. Your Lord, your master, your teacher, your rabbi is undergoing superhuman agony and suffering. And all that he said is, could you please pray for me? And you had to go nighty night. You went to sleep. And when Jesus comes, he doesn't say, oh, what? No. When he sees their weakness, when he sees their sin, when he sees their failure, and yes, it's a sin to not pray for somebody in need. This is a sin. This is a sin. And, and notice, as soon as he sees their failure, their mistake, their sinfulness, their weakness, what does he feel? Sympathy. I just wrote wow in the margin there. In fact, watch this. Just continue on in that same paragraph there. Um, jumping down a little bit, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Even in his great agony, watch this, watch this, watch this, watch this line. He was seeking to excuse their weakness. 
Friends, you know what I wrote here? Look what I wrote. I wrote right here. He was seeking to excuse their weakness. And look what I wrote. That's what God does. That's what God does. He looks for a way to excuse and forgive. I love this. Like he's undergoing superhuman pain and agony, incomprehensible, so deep, so deep, so dark. And when he comes and finds his disciples in the midst of a gross, irresponsible, reckless, friendless failure, he looks for a way to sympathize with them and to excuse them. Well, we did have a long day. We did, and they did eat a lot, right? Like we've all met... <laughs> We've all met those semi-indulgent parents that like their kid never did anything wrong. And they're like, well, they've always got like a, yeah, but, and you know, <laughs> there's a craft almost to this, especially when that child is like basically the devil incarnate and the, and the parent thinks that the child is an angel. And you're just like, wow, the, the mental gymnastics that it must take to not see what everybody plainly sees. Now, again, that's indulgent and that's not truthful. But to the degree that it's in keeping with the truth, Jesus is looking for every opportunity to excuse, to sympathize, to understand. I mean, let me just read it to you again. He was seeking to excuse their weakness. Seeking, looking for an opportunity to let them off the hook. That's the nature of God. Unlike Satan, remember, who presses with the hardest features. Yeah, but what about you? And what about your nation? And what about this betrayer? And what about the zealous one who says he'll rather die than betray you? I mean, we sometimes do this to people. And let's just pause right here and make the great pastoral application. When the opportunity comes to us to either press someone's failure upon them in its hardest features or to say, well, you know, they did their best. And to look for an opportunity to put the best possible construction on their failure we should be like Jesus. <laughs> this is so trite and so petty compared to what we're observing here. But just by way of illustration, my youngest son, Jabel, went today to take his driving test. <laughs> to take his driving test. And it cost $75 to take this driving test. So I said to Jabel, like a dad, <laughs> I was like, Jabel, here's the deal. I'll pay for the first one. I'll pay for the first one. It's on me. But if, if you fail that test, then you have to pay for the next one. And if you fail that one, you got to pay for the next one. That's your money, not my money. I was real tough, right? And I'm, you know, Jabel's a straight A student. He's a good kid, but he had to go and like drive and he's, he's not done a ton of driving. He's a good driver, but he's, a, you know, he's an inexperienced driver. He's a responsible driver. So anyway, he goes today, takes the test. I'm rock climbing. So Violetta takes him, he takes the test, fails. So Violetta comes to pick me up because I went with my, the fellow that I went climbing with today, whose name was also David. Violetta comes to meet me at David's house. And uh, I say, hey, how was your day? And she's like, well, the day was good, but, but Jabel failed his driving test. And immediately I was like, he failed it. Huh? What do you mean he failed his driving test? I mean, like, reflexively, I was like, well, he's got to pay for the next one. I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm such a mean person. I'm just such a mean person. And then Violetta, who's an infinitely better person than me, she's like, no, sweetie, I think we should pay for it. I think that's the right thing to do. 
he's not a super experienced driver and he did his best and and uh, we'll I'll go I'll take him out and I'll work with him and I'll practice with him and and uh, I think we'll pay for it. So then I'm like, well, fine. Fine. So we drive to the house and I walk in and I look at my beautiful little boy, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh from my very loins. And I should have said, hey, Jabel, how you doing, man? I love you so much. How was your day? And literally the first thing I said to him was, you failed your driving test? Oh man, I am such a bad human being. And even as I was saying it, I was like, why are you saying this? This is so mean and like, be nice. Like, let him bring it up. And then we had a laugh about it and, and it was cute. But the point is, Violetta is like Jesus and I'm like Satan. I mean, I guess, right? Like, Violetta's like, no, 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 he'll get it. He'll be all right. We'll pay for that next test. And I'm like, no, he's going to pay for it. And then I see him and I'm like, you failed your test. How do you fail the driving test? Anyway, this is my point. So, so, so Satan presses our failures upon us, like me, uh, with its hardest features. And Jesus is looking to excuse. He's looking for a way to forgive, to excuse, to understand, to sympathize. Amen? Beautiful. Okay, now this is one of the lines I was telling you about. Next paragraph, again, the Son of God was seized with superhuman agony. Second time, superhuman. By the way, we had a good laugh about it, and it's all, it's all fine. It wasn't even like I was mean about it. I was just like, I was expressing surprise. So it's not like, I don't want you to think I'm some sort of an abuser or something. I, I'm a, I'm, I think I'm a really good dad, but I, I could have been a little softer in that situation. So superhuman agony, okay, drops of sweat and blood falling to the ground. The cypress and the palm trees are silent witnesses of his anguish from their leafy branches dropped heavy dew upon his stricken form. Watch this, as if nature wept over its author. Mm. I'm, I'm in full worship mode there. Like nature itself is bending to weep over. And you know what nature is doing? Do you know what nature is doing? Nature is doing what the disciples were not doing. Do you know what, you know what came to my mind when I read this? Remember when, when all of the people were shouting and celebrating in the, in the triumphal entry and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, Hosanna in the highest. And the religious leaders came and said, hey, do you know what they're saying? Tell them to stop. Tell them to stop saying this. And Jesus said, if these were quiet, the rocks would cry out. Nature itself. When human beings fail, nature will occupy that place. Isn't that so cool? Like nature itself. Think about Jesus walking on the water. It's all tempestuous and he just says, or I guess not walking on the water, calming the storm. He says, be still. And it's just like, oh yeah, Jesus said to be still. Like nature is personified here. It's like given personality and nature itself, weeping, bending low. Man, I love that. And then this is where she says, next paragraph, a short time before Jesus had stood like a mighty cedar, withstanding the storm of opposition that spent its fury upon him, 
Stubborn wills and hearts filled with malice and subtlety had striven in vain to confuse and overpower him. This is Matthew chapter 22 or 21, all the questions, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And, and uh, whose will she be in the resurrection? And what's the great commandment in the law? All of that, or is that Matthew 22? I think that's Matthew 22. Yeah, Matthew 22. She, that's what she's talking about here. He had stood like a cedar in that tempest, in that storm. Watch this though. He stood forth in the divine majesty as the son of God. Now, or she could have easily said, but now he was like a reed beaten and bent by the angry storm. Jumping down a little bit, now had come the hour of the power of darkness. Next paragraph that begins the first impulse. Again, he felt a longing for companionship. That's the eighth time. Eight times. I mean, eight times she says it. He was longing. He was yearning. He was hoping. He was needing. He was longing. He was yearning. He was hoping. He was needing. For what? For what? What what does God, what does the infinite, illimitable, eternal God need? Oh, he needs some of his, his sons and his students and his understudies, his pupils to his flesh and blood to, to pray for him. Oh, but God needs? God wants? God yearns? Yeah, 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 yeah. She says it eight times. I'm turning the page. Um, and then it says, um, they saw the face marked with the bloody sweat of agony. They were filled with fear. This is the disciples. His anguish of mind, they could not understand. Again, this is where she just says expressly, they, they couldn't understand it. They couldn't comprehend it. They couldn't conceive of it. They couldn't, they were just beholding it. Then this paragraph, and this is the paragraph. For me, this was the paragraph and it begins turning away. And I love what she does here. Man, do I love it. I just love what she does here with this paragraph. Turning away, Jesus sought again his retreat and fell prostrate, prostrate. I think I said prostate earlier. Fell prostrate, overcome by the horror of a great darkness. The humanity of the Son of God trembled in that trying hour. He prayed not now for his disciples that their faith might not fail, but for his own tempted, agonized soul, the awful moment had come. And I put a big box and a highlight around that. The awful moment had come. This is it. This is the moment. All the preamble, all the preparation, all of the language, all, everything up to this point. And she says, now is the moment. It's do or die, literally. Now the awful moment had come. That moment with which was to decide the destiny of the world. The fate of humanity trembled in the balance. I like what she does there, how his, his, he was trembling and humanity is trembling. I like that. Christ might even now refuse to drink the cup apportioned to guilty men. It was not too late. He might wipe the bloody sweat from his brow and leave man to perish in his iniquity. He might say, let the transgressor receive the penalty of his sin. I'm out, I'm going home and I will go back to my father. Will the Son of God drink the bitter cup of humiliation and agony? Will the innocent suffer the consequences of the curse of sin to save the guilty? The words fall tremblingly. Notice that she's three times. Tremble, tremble, tremble. Tremblingly. She turns it into an adverb here. From the pale lips of Jesus. Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, it will be done. Right into the next paragraph. These two paragraphs. Three times he uttered that prayer. 
Three times his humanity has shrunk from the last crowning sacrifice. But now, there it is again. Third or fourth time. But now, and this is it. The history of the human race comes up before him. And she's going to say here like four or five times, he sees, he sees, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What is that? Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 2, I think. It comes up before him. It just, it just, here it comes. He sees humanity and its fate and its destiny and its potential come up before him. And she's going to say he sees it again and again. Watch this. The world's redeemer. He sees that the transgressors of the law, if left to themselves, must perish. He sees the helplessness of man. He sees the power of sin and the woes and lamentations of a doomed world rise before him. She says it again. He beholds, which is just another way of saying he sees its impending fate. His decision is made. And then a big box and a highlight. He will save man at any cost to himself. So you see what I did here? The awful moment had come. The awful moment had come. He will save man at any cost to himself. Kaboom, kaboom. That's it right there. That is the thing right there, right there. That is everything. That is everything. And look, just across the page here, just, just right here, just look, just across the page here, right here. Everything was at stake. That's where she says it the second time, right there. Everything was at stake. And Jesus makes up his mind. He says, come what may, come hell or high water, come whatever may, I'm going through with it. I love these guys too. I love them too much. I, I love the way they laugh. I love the way they smile. I love that little dimple in the cheek of John. I love Peter's enthusiasm. I love Thomas's inquisitive and sometimes doubtful spirit. I love him. I love him too much. I'm gonna do it. Even if my body explodes apart and my humanity cannot take it, I'm going through with this. I love them too much. Love seeks not its own. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. In that moment, when what's before him is uncharted territory, unknown, unseen, unexperienced in all of human history, right? The, the, the very nature of God tremblingly suspended in the balance. And he's like, whatever, I'm going on. Let's go. I will do this. Wow. He will save man at any cost to himself. Um, in the paragraph that begins, but God suffered with his son. I really appreciate that. I appreciate that she, she zooms out, right? Because we've been hyper zoomed in to Jesus in the garden. Everything has gone tunnel vision. And then now she goes and says, yeah, God, the father, suffered with his son. Angels beheld the Savior's agony. They saw their Lord enclosed by legions of satanic forces, his nature weighed down with a shuddering, mysterious dread. There it is again, mysterious, incomprehensible. And then the next paragraph that begins, the world's unfallen. This is the one where she says, when everything was at stake, you wanna underline that. She uses that phrase twice. She talks about the mysterious cup, the angel comes to strengthen him, not to try and talk him out of 
drinking it, but to strengthen him so that he could drink it. And then this was a great line because it's such an unusual word. I don't think it's a word I've ever used in my entire life. And I love words. And I don't think I've ever used this word in my whole life unless I was reading it in a book, like I'm about ready to now. So this is down toward the bottom of the paragraph that begins, the world's unfallen and heavenly angels had watched. She kind of zooms out to the whole great controversy motif there. But jump down to the bottom of that. He assured him that his father is greater and more powerful than Satan. This is the angel encouraging Jesus. That his death would result in the discomfiture of Satan. Come on now, tell me you don't love that. I don't even know what that word means, but I can imagine. I I should have looked that word up. The discomfiture. I love that. I need to look that word up. His death would result in the, oh, not just the discomfiture. I, I skipped a modifying word there. I skipped an adjective. The utter discomfiture of Satan. This has got Colossians 2.15 written all over it. Right, Colossians 2.15, let me just read it to you here. The utter discomfiture of Satan. I love Colossians 2.16, 2.15. Let's see, I'm going the wrong way there. Galatians, Philippians, Colossians. Listen to this. This is one of the great passages. I love this one. Colossians chapter two, verse 15. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Incredible. By the way, this, the word that's used here, the very idea here, making a public spectacle, that word is the word that was used when one king or one ruler would capture another king or overcome another clan or another nation and they would humiliate the king, sometimes by cutting off their thumbs and poking out their eyes and putting them in chains and bringing them back to their, to their land and marching them through the streets. That's the word there, to, to utterly humiliate them. But here's the irony of it. The, the irony of this text is God in Christ on the cross utterly humiliated Satan by hanging on a cross, an instrument of torture and humiliation? Okay, we'll get to that when we get to the cross, but it's, it's amazing that in the cross, the instrument of humiliation, Satan was utterly humiliated and experienced utter discomfiture. Come on, utter discomfiture. It's like something from a, a Jane Austen book. Their utter discomfiture. Oh, I just love that. So much. Okay, I'm turning the page here. Okay, then we kind of go back to narrative, right? As soon as she's gone through that, he's, as soon as she's gone through that line there, he does that, his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. She then resumes the narrative, right? And this is where Jesus goes to the disciples and says, fellas, I'm being betrayed. My betrayer is here. Get up. Let's go, goes out into the larger part of the garden, probably rejoins with the eight. And then here comes the murderous mob, right? With their lanterns and their weapons. And Judas comes out and, and kisses Jesus. And, and Jesus says, friend, which she says, and I completely agree. In fact, I thought this even before I knew that she had said this. That use, that strategic use that purposeful use of the word friend there was an appeal to Judas that even now 
you can reorient yourself. Even now, friend, friend, friend. Think of all the dusty roads we walked together. Think of all the meals we shared together. Think of all the miracles that we witnessed together. Think of all the laughs that we had together. Think of all the places that we slept together. Friend, even now, friend. And uh, then uh, the, 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 the Jesus says, I am he, but actually in the, if you, if you look at the, the uh, Matthew 26 version, I am he is italicized there. So Jesus just says, ego a me, I am, which is hugely important in the gospel of John, right? I am the bread of life and I am the good shepherd and I am the way, the truth and the life. And so when they say, hey, Jesus says, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. I am, and then they fall back. And, and Ellen White throws in this great little detail that the angel that had just been moments before comforting Jesus and encouraging him just flashes between Jesus and the mob and they all fall down. And I just wrote here as I sometimes do, I just wrote down the word seen, like seen, like, whoa. Let me read you this. The angel withdrew and the light faded away. Jesus had opportunity to escape, but he remained, here we are again, calm and self-possessed. As one glorified, he stood in the midst of that hardened band. Now prostrate and helpless at his feet, the disciples looked on, silent with wonder and awe. They have no idea what's going on here. That They're on a wave that they're just riding this wave with Jesus. They do not understand any of it. I mean, clearly Peter doesn't understand. He's like gonna pull out a sword and try to, you know, swashbuckle Jesus to safety, <laughs> right? But, but when, when Jesus says, I am, the whole mob, the whole mob falls down flat at the flash of Jesus' divinity and the angel that interposes itself. And just get that scene in your mind there, right? Like how awkward is that? Right, like all these people that have come with their weapons, you know, and, and their lanterns to arrest a single guy, like a 30-year-old travel-worn rabbi, and all of a sudden they find themselves, you know, down here, and then just slowly, awkwardly, sheepishly, just glance at one another and say, what was that? I don't know. I don't know what that was. And then they slowly stand up and then they don't want to be embarrassed in front of it. <coughs> yeah. And they sort of, you know, compose themselves. What a scene that must have been. I love this. Jesus then says a second time, whom are you seeking? And then she says, they had evidence. He who stood before them was the son of God, but they would not be convinced. That is C.S. Lewis. Are you asking God to forgive them? They won't be forgiven. Are you asking God to convince them? They won't be convinced. They all just fell down in front of a guy who said two words, ego a me, I am. And they're like, and then they sheepishly, slowly come back up, gather themselves and then persist. This is insanity. And sin is a form of insanity. Willful sin is a form of insanity because it is the purposeful and rebellious distrust of him who has given us no reason to distrust him and every reason to trust him. Sin is insane. It's not logical. It's not sequential. 
It's not linear. It doesn't, that, what the, their actions here make exactly zero sense. They've just been flattened supernaturally before the incarnation of Yahweh himself. And then he says, let's try that again. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And she's like, they had the evidence. The last time they asked that question and Jesus answered it, they fell flat on their face. She says, and I'll read it again in case you missed it. They had had evidence that he who stood before them was the son of God, but they would not be convinced. She then goes on to say he was ready to sacrifice himself. Fascinatingly, in the next paragraph, Judas comes up, gives the kiss. Greetings, rabbi. By the way, rabbi, that's the very word. Remember, that's the word that gave him away in the upper room. Remember that? Lord, is it I? 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 And Judas was kind of tuned out. And then when he realizes that everybody's staring at him, he looks up and says, oh, uh, uh, rabbi, is it I? And then Jesus says, you just said it. Because I'm not your Lord. I'm not your Lord. I'm just one of the teachers. And you've decided I'm not the best teacher. So what you do, do quickly. And Jesus, Judas here reveals his hand again. He says, um, Rabbi, Rabbi, greetings. Friend, why have you come? This was an appeal. He had no disposition to relent. Jesus did not refuse the traitor's kiss. That's incredible. That's incredible. He could have drawn back, you know, justifiably drawn back and been like, hey, mate, kiss somebody else. Kiss somebody that you're not betraying for 30 pieces of silver that you're not throwing under the bus. Kiss somebody else that, no, he's like, okay, come here, friend, kiss me. Jesus is always looking for an excuse, for an opportunity, seeking for a way to, to save, to forgive. The disciples, okay, then Jesus gets his hands bound. Peter pulls out the sword. And then I love this. I love this. So Jesus, get the order here. Jesus' hands are taken. They're getting ready to bind his hands. He, either his hands are already bound or they're being held tightly by a Roman centurion. Peter does the sword thing and then Jesus like releases his hands. Huh. What? How does that work? How does that work? Jesus just releases his hands. Here's another evidence. Like, oh, let me just, re let me release my hands. Oh, that cord, let me release. Or, or oh, strong Roman centurion, let me release my hands. Let me just touch this guy's ear. Like Jesus can do whatever he wants right here. And they know it. Like when Jesus just like releases his hands, they can't do anything. Then he heals the guy's ear. Evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence. But I'm telling you, this is the danger of trusting a mob or aligning yourself with a mob. Like large groups of people that are enthusiastic about something are almost never safe places to be particularly if they're really agitated and passionate. Like those situations can turn south so quick. They can just turn south just like that because people are not thinking clearly in these situations. They're not, they're thinking emotionally. They're thinking with their like feelings and their senses and their excitement and they're titillated and they're like, oh yeah, right? This is what happened at the, the Capitol Hill riots. Somebody just takes one person because most people are thermometers. Most people just reflect the ambient temperature, right? 
And all it takes in a mob is just a couple thermostats to set a temperature. And, and if somebody, if the bad person sets the temperature, then all of a sudden everybody else goes along with it because they're all thermometers, right? This is what made Martin Luther King Jr. so incredible. He was not just a thermometer. He was a thermostat. And when there was all of this angst in the air, as there often was at the height of the civil rights movement, to, to lash out and to push back violently and with force, he was such, I just finished reading oh, probably several months ago now, but I finished reading his last book that was uh, published posthumously, um, uh, Conflict or Chaos, Where Do We Go From Here? Community or Chaos? Community or Chaos, Where Do We Go From Here? Community or Conflict, one of those. Um, yeah, I think it's Community or Chaos, Where Do We Go From Here? And, and there was all this pressure on King especially when a young girl has been murdered or, or, or a, a beatings have happened or the dogs have been released or the fire hoses have been pulled out. There was all this pressure on King to say, okay, it's not working anymore. And he was like, no, under no circumstances, if you want my organization and my people and my influence to be involved in protest X or situation Y, it will, you're going to sign, he would make people sign, sign contracts that they will not be violent and that they will tell their constituents that they will not be violent. He was a thermostat. But very often, unless you have a strong thermostat like that, man, you get a mob together and, and you get the wrong kind of thermostat and the thing just goes all kinds of south. And it's not just the Capitol Hill riots. It happened in the BLM riots as well. So I don't want anybody to think I'm making like a political statement here. I'm just making a statement about, about the, the ease with which Large crowds that are agitated can do really stupid things. And then people who are just innocent bystanders who are along for the ride can get caught up in the enthusiasm of the moment, right? And that's what's happening here, like evidence upon evidence upon evidence upon evidence. And they're just like, uh, we got to arrest this guy. Jesus heals the guy's ear. Incredible. Um. Jesus says, put away your sword for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. We'll talk more about that when we get to the chapter on Calvary. Violence and Jesus' refusal to use violence, but his willingness to submit to violence. Again, it gets back to Colossians 2.15. Jesus humiliated Satan and the powers of darkness by being humiliated. When he was in a position where he could have extricated himself from it instantly, immediately, just like that. Just like he let his hands go from the Roman centurion, he could have just, just, just gotten out of it. So Jesus does, not, Jesus does not endorse, Jesus does not activate, Jesus does not apply violence. He receives cruel violence. And in the humiliating reception of cruel violence, he wins. When it looks like he loses, he wins. We'll get to all that when we get to the Calvary chapter. And then when Jesus says this, hey, you're coming out to arrest me with a mob and, and weapons. And, you know, I, well, I was daily with you in the temple. And she says that when he said those words, those priests and those religious leaders never forgot that as long as they lived. And I, I'd like to believe that some of those repented. Some of those very people that were in Gethsemane that arrested Jesus repented. Because we know that many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The book of Acts says that. So I'd like to think that some of those that were in the garden later repented because she says it. 
The words he spoke, they would never forget as long as life should last. You came out against me with swords and stabs as you would against a thief or a robber. Day by day, I sat teaching in the temple. You had every opportunity of laying hands on me, but you did nothing. The night is better suited to your work. This is your hour and the power of darkness. Okay, um, then she says that the disciples are afraid. Peter says, save yourselves. And they all flee. And then that great use of John 16, 32 at the end. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Jesus has passed through the first of two gauntlets. And I think in some ways, Gethsemane is no easier than Calvary. In fact, Jesus would have died in Gethsemane had the angel not come and strengthened him. Jesus could have died right there. He could have died right there. The, the mental anguish and agony, when Jesus makes up his mind and says, at any cost, I'll go through with it, all that's, all that's going to happen now, and I don't want to be misunderstood about this, but the cross, the actual physical crucifixion of taking Jesus' six-foot frame, 185-pound frame, and nailing him to a cross, that's all academic. The, the, the thing that, that's happening here, remember Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay down my life. Listen, it's a terrible, horrific, demonic, cruel, satanic thing that was done to Jesus. But all of that that's gonna happen to his physical body is merely academic. Jesus is not afraid of being crucified. Being crucified, in fact, and I'll just give you a little advance here, a little advance notice. She is going to say in the chapter on Calvary that the mental agony that Jesus endured was so excruciating that he scarcely felt the physical pain. Crucifixion was invented. It was created over centuries to try and maximize physical suffering. And she's gonna say that the mental anguish was so great and so strong, so pervasive that he barely felt that. That's where she's going. Okay, what was your word? I wanna know what your word was. Lay it on me. I'm quite sure that many of you will have the same word that I had. Amen, Michelle. My Lord and my God. Thank you, sister. Thank you. Okay, good words. Compassion. Love it. Cup. Excellent, Naomi. Victory. Oh, stone doctor. Good. Pressed. Playing on the Gethsemane thing there. Redeemer. Watch and pray. Now I like nevertheless. I'm with you, Hannah. I like it. Redeemer. Nobody's had my word yet. Agony. Permit. Nevertheless. Thy will, Michelle, I like it. Experience, nevertheless. Three. Oh, three. Excellent, Reiner. Yeah, three, three times. Agony's mentioned 13 to 14 times. Thank you for letting me know that. Thy will be done. Longing, yes. Excellent one there. New life in him, oh, nine, or new life in him, LP. Excellent. Yeah, of course, because eight times she says that she, he longed for the support and prayers of his, pray of his disciples. Surrender, holy, Behold, see, yes, Johnny, yes, see, see, behold him, behold him. Desired, intercession, I am, behold, behold. Excellent, these are all great words. Still haven't seen mine yet. Uh, there we go, Maria King, 186. Yeah, my word was separation, separation. And I'll walk you through something I think is really cool in just a second. Endured, moment, behold, a lot of beholds. And I, I can see that, I like that. I like that. I didn't even think of that one, but I totally like it. 
forsake, decision, prostrate, uncomforted, yeah, discomfiture, (laughs) that's a great word, conflict, divinity. Okay, check this out. Superhuman. Oh, good for you, White RG 1957. Yeah, great word, superhuman. Yeah, separated. I had the same as Myrna, same. Sorrow, except mine, I put separation. And, and let, me, let me show it to you here. Separation, separation. And you can see I've written separation here and then I've written all of this underneath it. I identified, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven incidences of separation in this section of the story. Okay, let me just share them with you. Um, Number one, Judas, this is the chapter just before this, but number one, Judas separates from the 12, separation. Number two, Jesus separates the three from the 12 or from the 11. Okay, number three, um, sleep separates the disciples' prayers and comfort from Jesus, sleep. Number four, Jesus was separate a short distance from the three, a short distance of separation, but separation nonetheless. Number five, of course, the main one, the father was separated from Jesus and Jesus from the Father. Number six, the mob was temporarily, briefly separated from Jesus by the interposition of the angel. And then finally, the disciples in fleeing were separated from their Lord. So for me, there were just these layers of separation, 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 separation. And the crowning separation was within the Trinity itself, within the Godhead itself. Okay, let's do our rubric. I actually didn't write it down, but I've got it in my mind. What was the point of this chapter? The point of this chapter, from my perspective, was to describe these layers of separation, the crowning act of which was, the crowning instance of separation, which was Jesus and the Father's separation under the weight of weight and magnitude of human sin. So that's the point of this chapter. For me, it was separation. Um, number two, what do we learn about the person of God here? Well, you know what I say? I say we learn that we don't know very much. That, that I, I'm just stuck on this mystery thing. I'm stuck on the enigma thing. I'm. I think. I think. The depth of this thing is like the Mariana Trench, right? That's thousands of feet deep. And I think we're literally standing up to our ankles in understanding. I I just, I just, what I think here is that we just don't know. To the degree that we know it, we appreciate it. We worship God because of it. We stand in awe of it. But there's a, there's an infinite depth here. And so the thing that, that I say about the person is, is that we don't know much about the nature of God. We don't know much about the inter-Trinitarian separation. We don't know the words like superhuman and so dark and so deep. All these words are just basically masking our fundamental ignorance about what's happening here. 
So that's what I put. How do we pray this chapter? Well, I think there's a lot of ways that we can pray this chapter, but but I think I want to pray like this. I think there's a thousand prayers that would grow out of this chapter, right? This chapter is a giant hub out of which a thousand spokes could could legitimately go. But for me, the, the thing that, that really sets in my soul on the the praying this chapter is the idea that that God can be encouraged or discouraged. He can be benefited or hurt by my actions, by the way that I live, by the way that I speak, by the way that I pray, by the way that I do life. I can bring joy to God. I just can't get past this notion of reciprocal, that God is not only the giver, but the receiver of love. He's not only the giver of joy, but the receiver of joy. And I mean, Ellen White, for Ellen White to make that point eight times in this chapter, she just, she just keeps beating that drum. She just keeps beating that drum that he needed, he longed, he yearned, he hoped for the sympathy of the disciples. Well, then that means that in some mysterious, wonderful way, the creator is connected to his creation. And so I say, God help me to make, to not crucify the son of God afresh. Help me to make your heart thrill with joy and to, not, to say no to Satan's insistence upon my failures and my weakness and my mistakes when he puts it in its hardest features. No way. I say yes to Jesus and no to Satan. And then how do we practice this chapter? You know how I think we practice this chapter? You ready for this? I think you should do what I do. And I don't often say that. That's not a kind of thing that I will say. You should do what I do. I don't, that's an, an unusual thing for me to say, but I do believe that I'm doing something right here. And you know what it is? I think you should read this chapter a lot. I think you should, I have made, I don't know why, but ever since I first read this book back in 1997, Something about that chapter lodged itself in my mind and I've just read it over and over and over again many, 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 many times throughout the years. And I think you should do that. That's how you can practice this chapter. By the way, you could do that with any of the chapters. They're all incredible. But something about Gethsemane, just that idea there that that everything's hanging in the balance, everything is at stake. And then she says, his decision is made. He will save man at any cost to himself. That's the... That's the, that's the nucleus of the nucleus of the nucleus of the thing right there in that chapter. And so you know how you practice this chapter? Keep reading it. Don't let the next time you read this chapter be the next time you read this whole book. Don't do that. Because you might not read this book again for another five years, right? Read this chapter at least yearly. At least yearly. In fact, a great time to read this chapter is when you're gonna have communion service. If you know communion service is coming, read this chapter. By the way, you can read it in concert with the Gethsemane, uh, the Calvary chapter as well, which we'll be to in just a little bit. Okay, everyone, it's been absolutely wonderful to be you, be with you. We're gonna close with prayer. Um, this was long, but I knew it was gonna be long. Of course, who cares if it's long? You can listen to it in two parts if you want. Like, as we talked about at the outset, everything's clamming, clamoring for our attention. Like, the, the, you know, scrolling is clamoring for our attention and, and the media is clamoring for our, and on Sabbath, like, is there, do we have anything more important to do than to reflect upon the infinite, incomprehensible sacrifice of God in Christ 
Jesus being numbered with the transgressors in Gethsemane. I don't have anything more important to do. I got to get ready for music tomorrow. I got a sermon I'm preaching tomorrow. I mean, I got stuff I've got to do, but nothing that I have to do is more important or more pressing, even though I'm tired, I'm quite tired, than reflecting on Christ in Gethsemane, to behold him, behold. So um, yeah, let's pray. Father in heaven, great to have been with these beautiful people. Lord, I wish we were all in a room together. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, Father, from all over the world, we tune in, we listen. We don't just tune in to DA with DA. We don't just tune in to YouTube or Instagram. We tune in by the spirit to Jesus. And Father, this chapter has moved us deeply. This has been holy ground that we've been on. Father, my shoes have been off the whole time. Um, Lord, we're on holy ground here and help us to appreciate insofar as we can the depth, the darkness that Jesus endured, the weight, the burden, uh, insofar as we can comprehend it. Father, help us to behold it, to appreciate it, and to worship you and to worship Jesus, for he is worthy. And Father, help us to just remember that Jesus is looking for every opportunity. He's seeking an opportunity to forgive and to excuse our weakness, our mistakes, our failures, our sins. Father, may we not take a disposition to be unwilling to be forgiven, to be unwilling to be convinced. Father, may we have soft, pliable hearts before you is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.